you remember, of course, that in the first 11 verses of this chapter, uh, Jesus showed himself alive to many people, and he instructed them for 40 days. And Jesus, of course, had many disciples, both men and women. And among them, Jesus had an inner group of 12 men called apostles. And Jesus chose them to be with him during his earthly ministry. And Jesus chose them so that they may be, uh, become the leaders of the New Testament church after his ascension. And in this passage that we read, in verses 12 through 26, we see how Jesus' resurrection changed the apostles. And that is the focus of our passage today. And the first thing we see, we learn about them, is that they are united in prayer and worship. United in prayer and worship. And so we read here that after Jesus' ascension, they returned to Jerusalem, went up to the upper room where they were staying, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, I'd like to draw your attention to two things that are very notable about this passage. First is that they were in one accord, uh, not the car not Honda Accord, but they were in one accord, in one mind and one heart. And that's really fascinating because if you remember, the 12 apostles were a troubled bunch. Let me give you an example. Among the 12 apostles was Matthew. And Matthew, of course, was a tax collector. And he made a career and life serving the Roman overlords. One of the other men of the 12 apostles was a man by the name of Simon, who is called the Zealot. The Zealots were a, a known political group in those days, and it was a group that led a revolt against Rome in AD 6, 6 AD. And this was a group that was very well known for opposing paying tribute and taxes to pagan emperor of Rome. So think about this. Matthew on the one hand, the man who made a career and life out of collecting taxes for the Romans, and Simon on the other hand, who belonged to that very nationalistic, patriotic group who identified themselves and who took pride in the fact that they opposed the Romans. You know, these two men, Matthew and Simon, they are not natural friends. They're not like-minded people. They're not the kinds of people who would casually hang out together. And of course, uh, who can forget, in Luke chapter 22, uh, Luke records how a dispute also arose among them, among the apostles, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. You know, these 12, they were a troubled bunch. They were a competitive, jealous group. And then secondly, the apostles were devoting themselves to prayer. And that is also fascinating because, if you remember, the apostles were not known for their prayers. Do you remember in Mark chapter 9 how 
a father of a young boy who was afflicted with the spirit that makes him mute, he brought the young boy, his son, and asked the disciples to cast out the spirit, and the disciples could not do it. And later, uh, Jesus explained to them why they could not do it. And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, the disciples, the apostles, they were fighting spiritual battles without praying. And of course, who can forget when Jesus agonized in prayer before his death, when Jesus needed more than ever the prayers and the support of his apostles and his friends, what were they doing? They were sleeping. what is happening now? With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And Luke, in chapter 24, verse 53, he also tells us that after Jesus ascended, they were continually in the temple blessing God. So you know what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, everything they thought they knew about life changed. Because Jesus rose from the dead, they realized that life was no longer about getting ahead of other people. Life was no longer about getting the upper hand over other people. Jesus' resurrection changed the petty and the jealous group of people to be united in mind and heart for Jesus. And so the power and grace of Jesus' resurrection, the power with which God, through his Son, conquers sin and death, the grace with which God changed the very being of the disciples so that they are no longer considered sinners in enmity against God, but justified saints and children, the power and the grace of Jesus' resurrection also made them persevere in prayer. You remember how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, instructed his disciples about the kingdom of God, and he promised to send them the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. And because of who it is that made the promise, Jesus, if Jesus makes the promise, there is an inevitability attached to it. Because if Jesus makes a promise, because he is faithful and true, and because he is the sovereign God, whatever he says, whatever he promises will be done. You see that? If Jesus makes a promise, it's inevitable. And yet, that inevitability did not cause the disciples to relax their prayers. They did not adopt this attitude. Well, Jesus said it would, he will send it. Sure, it's going to be done. What else can it be? We don't need to do anything. We just need to sit back and watch. Let go and let God. There was none of that. In fact, because Jesus promised, they prayed all the more fervently for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So that's what happened to the uh, apostles. They were united in prayer and worship. This petty, competitive, and jealous group, 
they became of one mind and one heart for Jesus. And these prayerless people became the people who prayed fervently. And now it brings us to a place where we can and we need to consider God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Notice that in those days, Peter stood up to address Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Now, this is sometimes confusing, uh, but there were two men named Judas among the 12 apostles. Judas, the son of James, whose name we just read in this passage, and Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot is the one who betrayed Jesus. And the tragic and the heartbreaking thing about that is that he was one of the inner 12, the 12 men that Jesus called to be with him, with whom he shared the most intimate moments of his life, with whom Jesus opened his heart and his life. Jesus loved Judas, but Judas did not love Jesus back, and Judas betrayed Jesus. And of course, we all know this story very well. He went and betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders, and for that betrayal, he was rewarded 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew chapter 27, we read that, Once Judas saw how Jesus was arrested and condemned, Judas had a crisis of conscience, and he took his money back to the priest. Of course, they wouldn't take it back. And he was so struck in his conscience, overburdened with guilt, that he hanged himself. He committed suicide. That's what Matthew chapter 27 tells us. But did you notice how Peter's description of his death is a little bit different. Peter says that falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So which is true? Did Judas hang himself or did Judas fall and his, uh, his intestines spilled out? Uh, this has sometimes been labeled a discrepancy And some people have cited these details as the proof that the Bible contradicts itself because the details given by these two authors are different. But it seems to me it is a very needless complaint. Uh, Do you know what happens to a decomposing corpse? Gas builds up. And you, I don't mean to be graphical, But uh, that's what happens. A decomposing corpse, there's a gas buildup, and there's an extension of the body. And if the rope with which he hung himself, if the rope breaks, or if somebody cuts him down, I don't imagine people would pass by without cutting him down. The, The impact of the corpse landing on the ground can easily cause the damage that Peter describes here. That is to say, there's no issue about discrepancies. This is not a proof that the Bible contradicts itself. Matthew tells us what Judas did, and Peter tells us what happened after he died. 
with that out of the way, what we need to consider here is how God's sovereignty intersects with man's responsibility. Now, we already saw this because earlier we saw how Jesus promised uh, to send the Holy Spirit. And because it was Jesus who promised, there was an inevitability to the fulfillment of the promise. He promised, and it was going to be done. He promised, and his sovereignty was going to make sure that what he decreed, what he purposed, was going to take place. Even so, the apostles did not become passive, but they prayed for the will of the Lord to be done, and they prayed for God's promises to be fulfilled. And in the same way, it is true that God decreed Judas's betrayal, and it was written in the Old Testament scriptures that he would do that. And the reason, of course, is that God did not leave the redemption and the salvation of his people to chances. But every step, every part was foreordained and accomplished by God himself to ensure that sinners, you and I, might be saved and to ensure that Jesus would truly and really and actually accomplish the work of redemption. And so God decreed Judas's betrayal. Nevertheless, no one can say that Judas's betrayal was foreordained and therefore Judas cannot be held responsible for what he did. Because once again, John Calvin puts it very eloquently, Judas fell away not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. You see, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it wasn't as if he had such a love for God's word and such desire to see God's word fulfilled that he said, I have to play my part in order that God's word will be fulfilled. I have to play my part in order for God's prophecy to be fulfilled. It wasn't God's word and prophecy driving him. Rather, what was driving him? The wickedness of his own heart. And so we have these two seeming two, uh, things that we cannot quite reconcile. On the one hand, there, are God's, there is God's sovereignty in which whatever he decrees must take place. On the other hand, there is human responsibility. And this is something that we cannot really untangle. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to us remains a mystery. And so we would do well to remember what Jesus said in verse 7. Do you remember how the disciples asked him, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus' answer to them was, it is not for you to know. And it seems to me that is a great answer in this situation also. You know, it is a part of our creatureliness. It is the limitations that our great and kind and loving God built into us. So it takes true wisdom to recognize and accept that some things belong only to the Lord. And our part is to be humble 
and be faithful. That is to say, there are two errors that we have to avoid. Either to say that God is sovereign, whatever he decrees will be done, therefore I'm not responsible for anything that I have done or will do. Or it doesn't matter what I do. By no means. God is sovereign. What he has decreed will happen, and yet we are called upon to be faithful and to be wise. And the other error that we have to avoid is that in order for my actions to have meaning, God cannot be sovereign. In order for me to be truly free, God cannot have sovereignty. That is also a mistake. But to recognize that here, there is a mystery that we cannot fully understand. And yet it is wisdom to recognize that if that is a limitation that God has given to us, we need to be humble. We need to accept it and be rather be concerned with faithfulness and humility before God. So that is how sovereignty of God and man's responsibility intersect. And that brings us to Peter's um, dealing of the situation. And that brings us to the third and the last point, the call to apostleship. And notice how here Peter directs the disciples to find a replacement for Judas. And Peter states the criteria. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So that's the qualification. That's the minimum qualification to become an apostle. Someone who is an eyewitness of everything that Jesus did in his public ministry, starting from his baptism, his life and his teachings, his suffering and death, resurrection and ascension. That's the qualification. That's the criteria to be considered an apostle. And it is really puzzling that today, in some circles, they simply dismiss these criteria and even appoint themselves as apostles. I remember some years ago, I met a man in San Diego, and I introduced myself as, hello, I'm Ken, I'm a pastor. And I forget his name. He said, let's say his name was Tom. And he told me, hello, my name is Tom. I'm an apostle. <laughs> and I was just taken aback and I said, what? <laughs> You're an apostle? Who made you an apostle? Because, you see, Scripture clearly states the criteria, the qualification to be an apostle. An apostle must be an eyewitness of Jesus' entire public ministry. Baptism, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is why no one today can meet these criteria. Simply because none of us today are the eyewitnesses of these things. And that also means that today there is no such thing as apostolic succession in the sense that Roman Catholic Church talks about it. You know, actually, this is one of those passages uh, that the Roman Catholic Church loves to quote because if you look at verse 13, Peter is named first among the apostles. 
And this is the reason they say Peter has supremacy over the apostles, and he is the head of the apostles. You know, it's interesting because by the same logic, if you look at verse 14, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is named last among the women. Does that mean, using the same logic, that Mary, the mother of James, has the least prominence or eminence among the women? Clearly not. So it doesn't work that way. And when the Roman Catholic Church talks about uh, the apostolic succession, they mean that that, uh, each succeeding pope inherit and possess the office that Peter inherited or possessed. But that simply is not a biblical mindset. Now, we can well speak of apostolic teaching, and we can well speak of apostolic ministry that is faithful to the teachings of the apostles. But no one can claim to inherit or possess the office of an apostle today. Why? Because of the criteria here. They must be eyewitnesses. And then notice how the final decision came down to two men. On the one hand, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and on the other hand, Matthias. You know, it's funny. Today, uh, if you're successful enough, if you're famous enough, you can become a celebrity that goes by only one name. Um, Adele, Prince, Kanye, what have you. Uh, But usually, uh, it's the important people who have long names. And notice how Joseph is introduced. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And likely, um, this long and mouthful introduction indicates that Joseph was a man of high social standing and of some importance in that community. And then compare the other guy. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. He says Matthias. There's nothing interesting about him, and there's nothing notable about him, especially against how Joseph is introduced here. But in God's good providence, it was Matthias who was chosen to be numbered with the 11 apostles. And it seems to me that is very much in keeping with how God works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes this point, which is a very applicable, apropos point to us. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You know, that's how God works. God does not choose people based on their, uh, on their resume. 
God chooses people not based on their excellence, but God chooses people so that they may bear witness to the excellent Savior. And it seems to me, none of these apostles were called because they were great and noble. But God's calling made them noble. And I wonder if it's, uh, if it's not a little bit like this. Um, I think in the choosing and the calling of the apostles, there's something similar to the choosing and the calling of preachers in that they make this point. Um, if God can love preachers, he can love anyone. And I often think that's maybe the reason why some people are called to be preachers, to demonstrate to the church, if God can love that man, he can love anyone. And maybe that's also in many ways true of the apostles. Peter, you know what he did? He denied the Lord. And not just once, three times. And then later on, we read in Galatians how he once again denies the gospel. They were not called to this office because they were great, but they were called to be the eyewitnesses and to bear witness of the great and excellent Savior. Because you see, it is all about Jesus. That is why... A faithful ministry is never the platform for the minister's fame and success. But faithful ministry is the platform to declare Jesus' life, his death, resurrection, ascension, and return. Because in Jesus' life is our purpose. Today, so many controversies of our society really have to do at their root cause. What does it take for human beings to uh, prosper and flourish? And everyone is uh, answering the question differently. But it is only when we look at Jesus, we see how a human being flourishes. By loving the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind and strength being loyal to him, by living by every word that comes out of God's mouth. That's how a human being flourishes. And when we look at the life of Jesus, that gives us purpose for life. When we look at his death, we see in his death the forgiveness of our sins. When we look at his resurrection, we see our justification. When we look at his ascension, we find our comfort because even now Jesus reigns at God's right hand with power and grace. And when we look at his return, that's our hope. You see, that is why it is all about Jesus. And that is why the apostles were called. And that is how the resurrection of Jesus changed them. With one accord, they devoted themselves to worship and prayer. They were united in heart and mind for the glory of Jesus Christ because it is all about Jesus. 
So let me ask you, is it all about Jesus for you? May we answer that question with a sincere and unreserved answer. Yes, it is all about Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us this morning. We thank you that you have given us a new life in which we find direction, forgiveness, justification, strength, and hope. And in Jesus, we have everything we need. So we pray that both as individual believers and as a church, that we may remain loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us and sanctify us so that everything that we do will be about the Lord Jesus and our enjoyment in him. For we pray in his precious name. Amen.